welcome to the Mastering College to Career podcast where we're here to help you land your dream job. So if at any time during this episode you find any value, please make sure you take a screenshot and you share it with a friend. And don't forget, make sure you leave us a review on iTunes. That will mean the world. So without further ado, enjoy this episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to this episode of the Mastering College to Career podcast. Today, I have a very, very, very special guest with us, and his name is Todd Bryan, Certified Financial Planner Professional, and he is the founding partner at Signature Wealth Advisors, LLC. And why I'm very excited that Todd is with us here at the show is because I think finance and personal finance and making sure that you understand that importance of having a good financial foundation is so important. Whether you're a finance finance student or not, you need to understand how to manage your money. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, but we're also going to talk about, about, you know, what are the types of jobs that you can get once you get out of school, if you have a finance degree and, you know, one of them being a financial advisor, that's a very, very popular job to do, but even better, you know, is, Learn a little bit about Todd's story because it is such a great story and I'm actually going to let him dive into that. So Todd, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Awesome, Daniel. Good morning and thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you are a fellow UCF alumni like myself, but uh, you have an amazing story. So why don't you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm from Titusville originally here in Central Florida and went to UCF my last semester at UCF met my wife, Lindsay, and now we have two beautiful children, Cambry and Colton. So now my, my shifting of my schedule has changed a lot over the years. Early in my career, I was putting in just countless hours, really seven days a week, towards devoting towards building my book of business and my career. And, and you know, now things have shifted a little bit for me for making sure I get in an office a lot earlier so I can get home earlier and spend time with the family. But uh, being a part of UCF and that community has really helped mold me into to who I am today and my college decisions I made to enhance my career and start getting into internships and different things early on really made a big difference for where I am today within my career. So this podcast is all about mastering college and ma- specifically mastering the transition between college and career. And um you have so you did a multiple internships while you were a college student, and I think you know. In the end, why did you decide to go into financial advising? And even though knowing that this is such a, a there's such a high turnover rate in the first couple of years of this you know industry, but particularly, would love to know your experience and kind of also learn a little bit about how you're involved in the community and how has that you know, even though your intentions were not for it to grow to help you with your business, how does that help? You know, because I think community service and being involved in the community, it is a potential win, 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 win. Yeah. uh, My freshman year at UCF, it was in 2003. And, and from a a professional standpoint, wasn't really doing much. I didn't have a a part-time job right at the time, really just a freshman year, enjoying the, the college life and, and having a lot of fun and going into my sophomore year, I was like, okay, I need to, need to get a part-time job, need to start working. And at some point somebody explained to me how internships work and, and I can't remember who it was, but they said, well, you really need to start getting some experience from internships because when you graduate college, you're going to be one of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people nationwide. 
And one thing that they always look at is your experience. And if you're a 22-year-old college graduate, well, how are you going to get any experience when you're a full-time student and probably have a part-time job on top of that? So that's where internships came in. And my first internship was in 2005, and it was with Merrill Lynch. And I went because it was my uh, kind of a, a third-degree family member of mine who who got me the opportunity there, and, and I got to see uh, how the lifestyle that they had and, and the business that they ran. And, and truthfully, at first, it was more so about, man, these guys make a lot of money. They do pretty well. This seems exciting to me. It's kind of like things you see on TV and in different movies. And and, uh, and starting there, that's something that I liked was flexibility, independence. I had no idea at that time how hard it was going to be. It's one of those things where it looks easy on TV or in uh, movies. But for me, it was a, a good opportunity to kind of get my foot in the door. And uh, I had a couple other internships throughout that as well um, that were in, in finance. Uh, I also did a minor in sports business management. So uh, there was a part of me that also wanted to be a part of sports and had an opportunity to work with uh, Orlando Predators, the Arena Football League team. And in that opportunity, I was able to find out that as much as I love sports, I'd rather be on the sidelines watching or in, in the stands watching as opposed to actually working the game and the behind-the-scenes aspect of it. So I grew a ton of respect for people that work within the sports industry, but I realized that I'd rather be a fan and, and not part of the team in that aspect. And I did a couple different uh, management and leadership type internships. Enterprise Rent-A-Car uh, was one that has a phenomenal management program that I was a part of for a semester. Uh, also realized that that it ultimately wasn't the path that I wanted to take. But with um, my last couple internships, one was with a financial planner out in the villages. And what he'd worked with was more of the senior citizens that are retirees and helping them with making sure that they've gotten to a good point in their life where they've saved enough money to be able to retire, but how do we manage it properly? We use an analogy of, of as you're working and you're working, you're, you're trying to get up the mountain. Once you reach that mountain peak, then as they say, most climbers actually die going back down the mountain. So the same thing with retirement planning. They've reached the top of that mountain peak. How do they get down the mountain safely? And that's how do they go through their retirement without running out of money? And in today's retirees and today's generations, a lot of them have pension plans. They've got Social Security. They've got things that are guaranteed that they can count on. But my fear is that for millennials and for the younger generations that, that they're just not saving enough money. And Social Security, you know, it should still be there. But when is it going to kick in? How much is it going to give us? Pensions. Most people don't have pensions anymore. So uh, I found that uh, a lot of the education that I needed to be providing at least early on was going to be to younger families. And it also helped that I was 22. I looked like I was 12 years old. So it was hard for me to convince a 65 year old to give me their millions of dollars of life savings, but I could work with a younger family, like a couple of 30 year olds who were married, maybe with a little kid and help them to begin to plan to help them to get to the mountaintop before eventually being the person to help them get down. So in doing so, I worked with uh, Northwestern Mutual to start my career, which was a good way for me to, to grow my clientele and to learn the business. And like you said, the vast, vast majority of financial advisors do not make it in the industry, but it's the same thing with business owners. Cause if you graduate college and you go into start straight into owning your own business, pretty good chance that you're not going to succeed in that. 
So it's, you know, do what, what can we do today to help to get us to that point in time where we can make it five years in, 10 years in, have that successful business. And so Todd, I, I can only, again, I know, and I, I know that what we'll talk about and, and I'll make throughout this episode is just our opinion is very broad advice, but what do you like from what I've seen and, and from the students that I've worked with when students go into, you know, financial advising and a lot of them like end up leaving the first, you know, year, two years, or even before the first five years, like, like you said, it's like a business, like 90% of people don't make it the, their fifth year. Um, I found that is they just didn't know what how much work it really took to build a business to bit to build their book of business. But what do you think? You know that there's such a high turnover rate in this industry. I think that there is a lot of times, like they like I mentioned, they would look at uh, movies like uh, Wolf of Wall Street and be like, "Oh, I want to be like Leo. Yeah, that looks like a lot of fun." Uh, or they would, um, you know, kind of see those stories of success and they will not really see all of the people that failed uh, in order to get there. And, um, there's a lot of, there's a ton of recruiting done on college campuses. Um, there overall in the, in the, in the field, there is a huge need in my industry for younger financial advisors. The majority of them, the average age of a financial advisor the last that I saw was like 58 or 59 is the average age of a financial advisor. And there is a huge need for younger people, but uh, I think a lot of times, you know, they just get, uh, they, they kind of hear, oh yeah, you need to work hard, but they don't really define what that means. And for me, I had times in which uh, I was working multiple part-time jobs and having multiple internships and going to school full-time. So when I graduated and I said, wow, I went from having all of these different jobs and internships plus school to really only having one job for me, I was like, well, man, I got plenty of time on my hands now to focus on this one thing and spend 60 to 80 hours a week on that one thing to be able to grow it. And so I think that's part of the issue is that um, people, even though they're like, yeah, I get it. I need to work hard. They don't really define what that means to them and, and really look at what are the hours I need to put in? What do I need to start doing? How do I need to get myself uh, implemented? Um, there's also been uh, studies that have been shown that people that are most successful in this career, maybe they started somewhere else first where they were like one of my partners, he was in corporate finance for many years out of, out of UCF and, and did that world for about five years. And then he jumped into to what we do now and it gave him a much better uh, appreciation, understanding for having the independence and the flexibility. Because a lot of times if you give somebody the flexibility in their schedule to not have to come in at a certain time and they can leave whenever they want and take vacation whenever they want to, which is what most careers in financial planning have, they, people take advantage of that pretty quickly and, and realize that um, they're just not very self-sustaining and sufficient with managing their own time properly. So that's what I, a lot of it of what I've seen is, but then um, a lot of times people will just kind of come into the career and they will not really realize that there's really two separate parts of finance. Uh, I worked at restaurants all throughout college and in restaurants, there's the front of the house and the back of the house. So I was a front of the house person, which is like a server or a host. So I'm dealing with the customers, the end clients, the end users, one-on-one -on -one, communicating with them, figuring out what their needs are, what they want, what they want to order. And then I go back to the back of the house and I 
properly communicate to them. Here's exactly what they want. Here's when they want it. They want their appetizer first, then they want their entree, then their dessert. And they're going to go back and create this meal that hopefully is going to be an incredible experience that's going to want them to come back again and hopefully bring their friends with them next time. And that's no different than my business now. I'm on the front of the house as the financial planner, meeting with the clients individually, learning more about what their goals and their needs are. And then I communicate with the back of the house, which for us would be our certified financial analysts we work with, portfolio managers, um, the mutual fund investment firms that we work with. They're going to go back, craft this solution for our clients. We go back to them, present it to them, and then hopefully they want to move forward with us. Just like in that restaurant, we want to keep coming them back. So we want to work with these clients for the next 30 plus years and then also hopefully bring their friends as well in the form of referrals. So people will just be like, finance, that sounds good, and not really realize what's the differences between the two. Both you can be phenomenally successful in, but one of them you're dealing more with the clients one-on-one. The other one you're dealing more with uh, managing the portfolios and the different aspects of that. So a lot of people I've worked with over the years that haven't stayed in this career very long, maybe they were more meant for the analyst side, which as a 22-year-old, if you're not married and don't have any kids and you don't have a high living expenses, then it's not a bad time to figure out exactly what you want to do because you don't want to make that jump when you are 40 and have a mortgage and uh, a family to support. And so, yeah, I think it's really important for students to understand that when you're looking at like the, the finance industry and, and taking aside like the corporate finance or, you know, that type of finance. But when you're looking at, there's a financial advisors, right? That's the front of the house, like you explained. And then you have the analyst, which is the back of the house. When I look at, you know, what most people end up, I think more, more companies are hiring in front of the house, like that advisor role. Is that because, you know, it is more of a salary, ba- there's generally doesn't come with a base. It is more very salary commission driven. And so companies can hire many more, more people um, versus analyst roles, those are more limited roles. Is that, has, has that been your experience? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, yeah, if you're not offering a, yeah, if you're not offering all these people salaries and you're only, some of the companies, they only give basically benefits if you qualify for them based on the production you do. This is, again, my opinion. I think that to be a financial advisor, it takes a unique type of individual to do that. Because in the first five years, I would say while you're building your book of business, it is a very, very tough career. Like the amount of outreach, cold calling, you know, networking that it takes for someone right out of college that might not have a big network within, with, you know, a family and friends that they have to now build. Um, is very tough. But then I look at if they're able to make that five-year mark, if they're able to build their book of business, how an amazing career being a financial advisor is. Um, And so like, what do you think are some of the qualities that make a successful financial advisor? Like the one that that comes to my head is grit. Like if you, you need, you need grit. Um, And also, can you describe what it, I wouldn't say a typical week because I know that every week might be different. It really depends on who you're meeting and everything like that. But what a, what a week would look like in the first year of you starting out this type of career. I think grit's definitely a, a good way to, to consider it and, and to think about it. The 
characteristics that I have found that it's come down to, at least for me, uh, in addition to just being self-driven, you can't really teach somebody to be motivated. Uh, you can help them at times with being motivated, but a lot of it is just internal factors that have just already been instilled in you from probably from the way you were raised growing up. But uh, from for me, a lot of it early on, you're just going to get so much negativity. And when you first get into the business, I remember one of the first phone calls I made, they should say, you know, reach out to kind of family and friends, tell them what you're doing. Maybe they can, maybe you can help them. Maybe not, but at least they should know what you're doing. And I remember one of the first phone calls I made, uh, the person was laughing and they're like, what are you talking about? This, you know, this isn't going to last. I talked to several people in that career. None of them stuck around. And uh, I had a lot of phone calls and a lot of meetings like that. I actually kept two emails that I received uh, in my fourth and in my first year of the business of people that basically I'd, I'd scheduled a meeting with them. Both of them were business owners and I sent them an email to confirm the meeting. And in that email response back, both of them gave me all these excuses why they didn't want to meet. And one of them in particular, he said, I just want to let you know if you're coming to pitch me, he's like, I hate salespeople. I hate meetings that I don't initiate. And it's really going to upset me if that's what this is going to be. And Early on, I would hardly go on any meetings without having a senior person with me. I knew I was going to be splitting the deal with them, uh, usually 50-50. But uh, in that type of meeting, I saw I got the email and I was scared. I was like, I don't, this guy's going to be a jerk. I don't even think we should go. And I brought it to my manager at the time. And he's like, no, this is fine. Let's do it. And the guy ended up becoming a good client who's still my client 12 years later uh, after that initial email that scared the crap out of me. Uh, and another one in which, you know, my first full year in the business was 2008. And if you remember 2008, not a great year. And um, this one was a business owner in 2008, the same thing. They're like, business is down. We've had to lay off employees. There's really no chance we can do any business with you. If you still want to show up, we'll be here. But I think it's going to waste all of our time. And same thing, the guy actually ended up becoming a client. And I saved those two emails just as my motivation, because if I were to hear no, I just knew that I was just one no away from a yes. Because you're going to hear nine no's before you hear one yes, typically, based on the ratios we would use, 10-3-1. So for me, every time I heard a no, it was just going to be another opportunity for a yes to come around. Um, out of the qualities, though, that I've, I've found over the years is uh, likability being one. So if it's someone that genuinely people will like and want to be around with, yeah, I look at it again as a, it's a 30-year relationship. So in the first couple of meetings, you're really just kind of on the first and second date feeling each other out because I want to make sure that they're going to like me in a way that in the next 30 years, they want to have a smile on their face when they see me calling or they get an email from me, oh, I need to see what that's about. And if we don't like each other, it's probably not going to be the best relationship long-term. Um, there has to be that trust as well with some of my biggest clients. It took me years for them to become my client because it takes a long time to build that trust. And that's why referrals are so strong within our business and any sales or any business owner, you know, referrals are something that if, if, if I get referred from somebody's best friend or their sibling or their parent, that we know that there's going to be trust that's involved in there as well. And and finally, for me, you mentioned, you know, I basically have more letters after my name than in my name. And that's because I focus so much on building my education early on and, and having a CFP, CHFC, CLU, AIF, 
it helps to build credibility and let people know that yeah, I've spent years and years and years of studies in this career and I'm continuing to, to grow and to learn to become the best for my clients. Um, the average week early on, uh, I would basically work, come in around 7.30 Monday through Friday and Monday through Thursday, I would, in the evening, I would either meet with clients because I would basically meet them anywhere and anytime that somebody would say yes to me. I don't care where it is, I'm there. And uh, if I didn't have meetings in the evening, I would be calling people that I wouldn't be able to get a hold of during the day, or I'd be going to networking events, happy hours, uh, trying to meet as many people in person as I could, because if I've met people in person at events like that, that means I didn't have to cold call them. And I figured I could do better face-to-face than on the phone uh, doing a cold call. Uh, And then Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night, that first nine months to year in the business, I worked at a restaurant as a server to be able to support myself because I basically didn't make any money that first year. So I had to be working at that restaurant just to get that. And finally, by the end of that first year, I was at a point financially where I could let go of the restaurant job because I was at the point where I was nervous that one of my big potential clients is going to walk in and sit at my table at the restaurant. And that would kind of ruin that deal if if I'm uh, serving him his food Friday night and advising him on his million-dollar account on Monday. So early on, you know, I could do that because I was dating my wife at the time, but, um, but I, I, I kept telling her, my, my best sale was to her saying, stick with me. Eventually I'll make money. I know you're never going to see me, but if you just stick with me long enough, I swear I've got a plan. It's all going to work out. And, and fortunately it's, it's worked out pretty well. How do you overcome, you know, in the beginning when I think, you know, fi- uh, financial advisors sometimes have such a negative reputation especially early on like i get called on especially through linkedin now it's a lot right about hey i just want to get to know you and sometimes it feels like a bait and switch and and funny enough like when my now he's my best friend when he was my financial advisor um he had reached out to me on linkedin he had said hey just you know just like meaning like-minded people want to get to know you um i'm not going to sell you um, and we ended up going to get lunch. He actually didn't bring it up. I was the one who brought it up. But long story short, I became a client. But um, even since then, I, I get a lot of calls. And sometimes it's it's very, you know, it, it can be hard. I understand what they're trying to do. But it, there's a negative, you know, of as another financial advisor, they just, want, they just want the business. Like, how do you overcome that? And the second question, I guess, is if my son were to come out of college and I, I don't know that I would say, do this, but if you say, hey, I want to be a financial advisor, can I manage your money? I would be like, what do you know about managing my money? Yeah, as far as the overcoming those objections, one thing that was important to us, you know, next month will be the five-year anniversary of us, myself and four others, founding Signature Wealth Advisors. And a very important thing is that the branding that we've that we built and established because we met with somebody, a branding consultant early on to help with formulating our logo and our brand and our corporate culture and our our mission and values and, and all of that. And we didn't want to be the type of company was just going to bring in 50 new people every year and knowing that one or two, I'm going to stick because that would be 48 people that are not going to be in the business a year from now that are then calling everybody, hitting them up on LinkedIn and emails and 
kind of putting a, our reputation on the line in doing so. So we have been extremely strategic in the people that we allow to represent our brand because I don't want to be the, I can't control if I'm the fifth financial advisor to call Daniel in the month of August, but if it's someone from my firm that's calling, it's not from a cold call, it's from somebody because, you know, your best friend said, hey, you need to talk to this guy. Uh, He's the man, he's someone he should know. So, um, yeah, I had a lot of times, unfortunately, in my career uh, in the first seven years where I would get a really good referral to a really great prospect, and I'll call them up, finally get a hold of them. They're like, man, you're like the third guy this week to call me. He's like, no, I'm not interested. And then, yeah, so that does happen a lot. It's, uh, it's something where, uh, for me, I just tried to focus so much on on building really strong relationships with my clients so that whenever I am reaching out to somebody, my goal was always that they've already know that I'm calling. So if, if you were to, if you're my client, Daniel, and, and you wanted to, um, you know, refer me to somebody, I'll usually have you send them a text message, just giving them the heads up. And that way it gives them an opportunity to say no to you instead of me. So if they say, no, I'm good, then uh, I know that it's going to be, you know, someone I'm not even going to reach out to. And typically I would, I would have them send out like five text messages or so. And out of those five, usually two people would say, no, thanks. Two of them wouldn't respond, which is fine, because then when I call them, they're like, oh, yeah, I got a text. I forgot to respond to them. And then one would respond back, yes. So the person says, yes, I'm going to call them within the next 24 hours, and, and we're pretty much good to go. But then the other ones, I'm going to, um, you know, it's, it, it makes it a lot easier to be able to, to reach out knowing that they know that I'm going to call. And then, you know, luckily for me, I haven't had to make cold calls. Uh, I'm 12 years in, and I've haven't had me make any phone calls for at least the last 10, maybe 11 years because of building those strong referrals early on. Uh, I think for a, like you said, for, for your son or, or for, for my children, if they were to, to get into business in the future, um, a good way to do it is just to spend so much time learning early on when you do have that free time to be able to do that. And it's, you know, books and podcasts and getting your designations and your licenses and uh, making sure that you do uh, what we call joint work and, and learning from people that have been doing it for a really long time, because it is really, really tough early on for a young person uh, to, to build that trust, that credibility right away, fresh out of school. So for me, it was in my business and really in any business, reaching out to people that can be mentors to you. And uh, luckily, through some of the organizations I was a part of um, throughout school, I was able to build up those those mentors and be able to have people that I could go to, good times or bad, that could help me out in that. And within my career, I've done the same thing. And, and one thing, I, I go to a lot of conferences and listen to a lot of speakers and uh, a lot of them, there was one actually, one of the most successful financial advisors I've ever met, and he spoke at a conference, and one thing that he mentioned in, the, in his conversation was, I never missed the opportunity to become a teacher to somebody. He's like, I love, I love being able to teach people new things. So I actually hit him up after the conference and uh, said, I'd love to get some time on your calendar. And he's like, oh, man, you know, I'm so busy, and I've got so many clients and everything else. And I said, well, in your speech, you said you never missed the opportunity to become a teacher. I'm giving you that opportunity. He's like, man, you just called me out on something I said in my speech. He's like, all right, how's next Tuesday at 2 o'clock? So uh, that guy ended up being someone I've spoken to several times, learned a ton from. And uh, those types of things are, are where we have opportunities to learn from people that have already done it. I love it. So um, 
I guess for me, and I think I was sharing this story with you, there was actually a point in, in my college career that I, I was thought about going into financial advising, but the reason, the real reason was that, um, was because my grandma, my grandmother sold insurance or fi well, financial products, including life insurance and uh, disability insurance. And my father who passed away when I was three years old, he never bought insurance from my grandma. I think he bought a car insurance just so he said he supported her business, but never really bought um, life insurance or disability insurance. And so my father passed away from pancreatitis when I was three years old. And that reason that, you know, that decision really affected my, my mother because she went from never working a day in her life to essentially moving to the United States with me as an eight-year-old to give me a better opportunity with just $2,000 in two suitcases. And obviously I'm very glad that that happened the way it happened, but like it would have been much, much better for, for my, for my mother to have had that life insurance. And so one of the things that I did very, very early on when I started, you know, when I graduated and I had a really good job and I had, you know, recently had gotten married was that I didn't want to put my wife in that position. And so um, I, I had, I got life insurance and disability insurance um, for both of us. And but one thing I never realized is that how inexpensive it is to get life insurance when you are young. And, um, and I know that you can't give, you know, any personal advice, but it's more like a broad advice. What advice do you have for your students about making sure that they're covering themselves, you know, in terms of disability, life insurance, and any other type of insurance that they might need? Because I think sometimes we think that the best way to protect ourselves is to invest, but sometimes playing defense first is better than playing offense. Yeah, I talk a lot about... Uh, in my in my planning with clients about the offense and the defense, and you you know using football as an analogy, and and having a strong a strong foundation and a strong football team, the offense is fun and exciting, but there's got to be some sort of defense there. There are things that people don't want to talk about, and it's easy to talk about football because our UCF Knights will be taking the field in a couple of days for this beginning of the next season, but on the defensive side. It, it's something that it is crazy when I ran the numbers for myself early on of just how cheap it was. So as a young person and getting those things locked in, it's an unbelievable savings for the long term. And those two things you mentioned in particular are, are pretty much the only two insurances out there that you can actually lock in that price now because car insurance, homeowner's insurance, health insurance, we know those costs are all going to go up. And it's something that it, it people don't think about it, but it is definitely something early on to to think about. And you know, I had a a good friend of mine who, in his late twenties, um, got diabetes, and his he's in great shape, very healthy overall. But because of the diabetes, he actually got declined completely for life insurance. And that was when he did get married and and had a kid to support and not being able to, to have that. So uh, I do encourage people to at least look into it, but I also want to make sure that they have, you know, generally speaking for a young person, you know, make sure that the budget is there, make sure that they're not overspending. You know, I have clients that make uh, 50,000 a year and I have clients that make 50,000 a month. And the difference between the two, a lot of times is in success is the amount of spending because someone who's making 50 grand a year, but they're saving all of their money. They're saving 25 to 30% of their money. They're not spending very much. 
they could be more financially successful than that person making 50 grand a month because the guy making 50 grand a month might be spending 48 grand a month on multiple houses and boats and cars and everything else. So uh, I have found that my most successful clients in retirement now not necessarily made the most money, but saved the most money to be able to get to where they're at. So I encourage them to properly manage their budget, manage their spending. There's all types of apps and ways to do it that there wasn't there in the past. Uh, but I think those are where they're going to get their foundation from. Uh, and also, you know, looking at things like Roth IRAs, for example, and then whatever company that, that your listeners start off with, certainly doing at least whatever the 401k will match with their company is definitely a smart way to get started as well. So what are some rule of thumbs that you, you, you know, that you think are, are some things that, you know, you should look into following? For example, is there a certain amount of money that you should be spending on housing or transportation or even, like you said, the 401k match uh, that companies that you might, they might go to work for uh, are matching or if they're matching dollar to dollar or 50 cents on the dollar or whatever that might be? What are some other rule of thumbs that you think are very important for students to know? Yeah, one of the most important rule of thumbs that I have found uh, as a student, I know it's tough, and as a, as a new college graduate, or even really for anybody, is having that emergency fund saved up. So having a minimum of three up to six months of your expenses just sitting in savings. And I have found that the best way to have that money saved is an account that's separate from your primary checking and savings account. So if you work with a bank that you have your primary checking and savings, you can go onto an app right now and transfer money back and forth. You're not always going to have accumulated the most savings in there because you can easily access it today. But if you have a a separate savings account at a different bank or an online bank that gives you a, a high yield rate on it, those will usually take a couple days for transfers to go back and forth. And just having that in a separate place is going to trick you into, into thinking, man, do I really need that for going out this weekend if it's going to take three days to transfer anyway? And you keep that as, as far as a savings that you can build up there. Um, in relation to you know housing and those types of things, I, I lived in a in one of the high rises here in downtown for a couple of years out of college, and uh, I actually my first house that I bought the mortgage was the same price as the the apartment that I was in, so it was awesome and, and cool living in the apartment. But for me at that time, it was with my girlfriend and now wife, and we were splitting that cost. So uh, she was working, I was working, we were splitting it down the middle. You know, these days she stays at home with the kids, so that you know that the burden financially is on me to be able to provide for that mortgage payment. But I think early on, you know, it's 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 fine to have great experiences and and to live at those places, but you ideally want to be able to find people you can split those costs with and and kind of minimize that. And cars, yeah, in my world, there are. Uh, people that have you know, very, very nice cars that they spend a lot of money on. And for me, as a financial advisor, if you're, if you're flaunting around a $100,000 plus car, uh, I don't know if that's really the best thing for your, most of your clients to view. Some will think it's cool, but um, the ones that will appreciate the fact that you're, you, know, you can't go around telling them you shouldn't be wasting such money on a depreciating asset, and then you pull out of the driveway in one of those depreciating assets. So for me, I've always, I've always lived 
what I've told my clients to do. And anything that I'm advising them is not something that I am not currently already invested in or would be given their situation. So that's something that's important uh, to be able to to do. And, and so for me, I'm never wasting a ton of money on cars, which is the ultimate depreciating asset. Yeah, I think those are some some great advice. I think when I look at back and I, and I say, what, what what do I wish I would have done but, uh, differently earlier on is, I remember when I graduated, um, I had a really great job um, right out of college with a really high salary and, you know, and I ended up going and living with some friends from college friends and it was by Orange in Michigan. I still remember. Uh, and it was in this house right next to this laundromat. It was like borderline, very not a good area. And I was paying $350 of rent. And all my utilities, everything for the house was costing me less than $500. And I was making over $50,000 a year. Um, and so I was saving so much money. And for me, the definition of the American dream was always to graduate college and buy a house. So I always knew exactly what it took for me to buy a house. And I knew that a year after my graduation, I can get that pre-approval letter from the bank. Um, and because I was able to live... Um, and only my expenses for living was only $500, which was less than like almost less than five, 10% of my income at the time. I was able to, you know, buy a brand new house, build it, put a down payment and then furnish it all cash. Not, you know, not into get into credit card debt and everything like that. And I just think that um, when I did that it was great. I was able to buy a property and, and the property has appreciated since then. I'm still living in the house now, but I look back and I think about how much more would I've been able to save if I stayed living there for two to three years um, after college, right? And, and I guess you never, it's hard to tell because the house also appreciated in value and has been a great investment. But I also think about the fact that I was just saving so much money and what could I have done and maybe bought multiple properties and invested in that. But I think I go back and I think about students and I think the longer they can live as college students, they're, they've, they have a custom, right? For the four, for the last four or six years, however long it took them to graduate, they've, they've been living on a certain budget. And a lot of times that budget is less um, than what they'll be making once they graduate. Hopefully that's the goal. And if they can continue to live that way, continue to live with roommates, um, not one of the things I see all the time, like you see graduation two weeks after graduation, I see them posting their brand new car that they bought from the dealership. Um, and I think about how if they would just continue driving that car for two more years, the car has been serving them while they were still college students, or if they would have bought a used car versus um, an, a brand new car with zero miles. And I think about all the things about them continue to live below their means. And, and I talk about living within budgets and making sure that if they understand that they shouldn't be spending more than 30, 40% on housing, that should determine where they, where they go and live. Um, and same thing where they drive, I think that they would make better financial decisions. And I just seen it, the, the students that are start very early um, with being sm smart financial decisions. And I, and I say like having a smart, you know, financial foundation, you can see what they are able to accomplish five to 10 years from now, because if they have the savings, if they have the three to six months um, buffer, they can make those decisions. Like I would have never, never been able to quit my corporate American job to start this business if I didn't have savings that allow me to do that. Um, and then I feel like if I were living above my means, 
you know, I was making good money, but I was dri- if I was driving, if I was leasing a BMW or Mercedes, or if I would have, you know, had a lot more like a nice like Rolex and stuff like that, I feel like I would be handcuffed to my corporate job because my income needs to, I need that income. I can't forgive that, forego that income to pay for my expenses. And I think that, that, that it's, it's like a trap because like, I feel, it's just like human behavior of the more you make, the more you spend. And so how do you stop that? Yeah, it's, it's really tough, especially because yeah, credit card companies are, are targeting college students or young people as a way just to rope them in early. And so many, I, I see it so often with credit card debt. And I work with a lot of attorneys and physicians that have law school and, and medical school and, and the debts that they put themselves into there. And, and I've got a ton of clients starting off that, you know, they become my client and, and they have six figures of, of debt, a lot of from, from student loans. And, and the, like I said, the ones that are the most successful are not going out and buying that brand new car or you know, buying these lavish things. And I understand wanting to do that because you've worked really, really hard to get where you're at and you finally do have a little bit of money coming in. But it's just so crucial to be able to to do that early on. And you know, I have clients that are spenders and I have clients that are savers. The savers, my goal is to get them to be more efficient with how they are saving money. Uh, the spenders, I have to take a little more work on because I need to explain to them everything that you just went over and and why they shouldn't be spending and and the the traps that they're falling into and and the ways in which credit cards or companies are marketing to them and then trying to get them to just say, it's okay, yeah, you'll pay it off later. We'll give you zero percent for twelve months and worry about it then and and those things just keep snowballing and eventually they get themselves into a trap where they they can really never get out of it. But I think that you know, early on in making those those key decisions uh, and making those smart decisions, you know, there's ways in which people can live awesome lifestyles, but they they do it in a frugal manner to be able to to be able to do that. And uh, a lot of my my buddies and friends will make fun of me because I check in on Facebook at the dry cleaners because every time you check in, you get five dollars off. So I'll drop off three shirts on Mondays, and it'll cost me six dollars but I get a $5 discount every time I check in. So it costs me a dollar. So my dry cleaning bill throughout the year is very, very, very minimal because every time I do it, I check in on Facebook, get the $5 off. And you know, those types of tricks, it's uh, downtown. I'll, they sponsored this one today. It's Acme Cleaners in downtown Orlando. Um, but yeah, I was like, is there any limit on this? And they said, no. I said, so I can just drop off one shirt every single day and it's free because I get $5 off. They're like, yeah, pretty much. That's been going on for like five or six years now. And anytime I see anybody who I haven't seen in a while, they're like, why are you checking in so much of the dry cleaners? And I'm like, because I'm frugal. I don't care how much money I make. That's something that I'll always do because, you know, that's $5 every time and that adds up. And there's a lot of small tricks and things you can do like that, that, you know, especially young people can start doing early on and be able to um, put themselves in that better decision uh, long term. Yeah, I think that's funny. So I know we're like almost past our time. Time's flying. I'm gonna leave like I'm. I'm gonna give you one one advice that somebody gave me when I bought my mortgage. But then I'm gonna leave it up to you for you to give me like if what is one thing that you want college students to take away from this episode. But somebody, uh, I think I read this actually that if I pay my mortgage on a bi-weekly basis, 
or sorry, bi-monthly basis instead of just writing one, uh, one check every month. So the bank receives 12 checks. I write the checks every two weeks for half of what my mortgage is. And if you do that, you end up paying one month more a year without re- really realizing it because you get paid, most companies pay you bi-weekly anyway, or by, I might be saying it wrong. I can't think about it this morning, but bi-weekly anyways. And if you do that, you'll be able to pay off your mortgage seven years earlier. And so I, I, I've been doing that since, um, since I bought the house. And, and so obviously that, that extra month goes down to your principal. So it helps you anyways, but that was my trick. But I'm actually leave it to you. Last thing, what is one thing that you want college students listening to this podcast to take away? One thing we didn't really touch on too much, and we don't have time for now, is uh, I got an opportunity um, beginning of my junior year to work with a nonprofit organization, and it's called Outreach Love here in Orlando, and we do tutoring and mentoring for kids from the Paramore area. Uh, they're they're defined as at risk children who. Most of them do only have you know, one parent at home, and the situations are, are pretty rough. And throughout the, their, their lives to this point, they're not really getting a lot of one-on-one work with anybody. A lot of them have multiple siblings, and their parents, you know, their one parent that they are with probably works multiple jobs throughout the week and, and is not really there for them that much. And a quote that I, that I heard from Zig Ziglar that I've, I've really lived my life by is, you can have everything in life you want if you'll just help other people get what they want. And and being part of that organization, uh, I did that for 10 straight years every other Saturday morning. So every other Saturday morning, I'd wake up early, drive to downtown Orlando, and be there for, for a child and be there one-on-one to help tutor them or mentor them. And, and we'd have group activities and other things as well. And And I did that as a way really for me to be able to give back. But professionally, personally, uh, it, it helped me in so many ways. And even today, 14 years later in that organization, I've, I've gotten a lot of great friendships and a lot of great clients, which was my, not my initial intent because I wasn't even in the business when I started. Um, but I, it's been a way for me to, to grow relationships and really to help help these students that nobody else has really has their back. They just think they're going to become another statistic. And and um, they, they're in a place where they really need some of that. So for me, if I can leave one thing with the listeners that, that you work with, it's really to, to focus what little time you do have in helping other people and whatever that ends up being and whatever you end up doing in your career and investing that time in somebody else that will ultimately be there to help you out as well. I, I, that's awesome. So, some awesome advice. Thank you so much, Todd. This has been an amazing episode. Um, if students want to contact you, contact you, what is the best way for them to reach out to you? Um, the best way is through, I would say through LinkedIn. Um, most active on that. My LinkedIn is, I'll put it on the show notes. Perfect. And then if they wanted to email me, they yeah, could yeah. as well. It is that it is, it is really your name. If you put top Brian, it is uh, linkedin.com forward slash I N forward slash Todd Bryan, but I'll put those in your, um, in the show notes. So anybody that want to, wants to reach out to you, they have the link. Perfect. Thank you again so much. You have been an amazing guest. I think we covered some amazing con- uh, stuff. We talked about, you know, 
your story. We talked about career and financial advising, as well as, you know, some rule of thumbs of personal finance for students. So students, thank you so much for listening and catch you guys on the next episode. If you're listening to me right now, you, my friend, have made it to the end of the podcast. I want to take some time to thank you and congratulate you for being different and taking control of your career, doing things like listening to this podcast, putting yourself out there and building the experience needed to land your dream job is what's going to set you apart and not be just another statistic. So great job. Keep it up. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with your friends and make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Talk to you soon. One more announcement regarding this episode. This episode, we did talk a lot about financial advising and because it is a very regulated industry, I do have a disclaimer that I have to read and that is that the views and opinions are those of Top Brian. Top Brian's views are not necessarily those of MML's Investor Services, Inc. Um, There's also a larger disclaimer in the show notes that you should read. Thank you so much and have a great day.